won't be long before we'll all be there with snow. Snow, snow. I want to wash my hands, my face and hair with snow. Snow, I long to clear a path and lift a spade of snow. Snow, to see a great big man entirely made of snow. Welcome everyone to this, our fifth episode of the Progress City Radio Hour. I'm Jeff Crawford. It's good to be back with you all. With me, as always, Michael Crawford. Michael, how's it going? It's great. It's chilly out there. Yes, indeed. There's a chill in the air. This is our snow show. Wishful thinking in August, but we're going to journey into some frozen worlds of the Disney canon and see what's going on. Yeah, I'm excited for this. I much prefer the winter to the summer let me tell you. And I've been dreaming of snowy scenes and wintry vistas. And some of these projects are my favorite projects to think about because they're all nice and cool. This is an old idea that we had, but we finally got around to it and we've bested ourselves by doing podcast episode a month apart. I know people will be shocked at that. I know. I don't. They didn't think it possible, but yet we're we're doing it we dreamt it, we did it. And yeah, this is something we had planned like a long time ago and had done a little bit of, you know, tentative recording, but it, it never quite came together. But now now we're here. And I must say, I have to thank everybody for their reaction to the last new podcast, our episode four. Uh, the reaction was very warm and friendly and wonderful and I want to thank everybody for being so cool and welcoming us back. I want to give a special thank you to anybody who still had us in their podcast feed, just in case, because they were the early adopters. And right? I, yes. I mean, our strategy. So our strategy was that we were going to roll out the episode because it's it was Fourth of July themed. We're going to announce it, roll it out on the third of July. But just because I was interested to see. We set it to upload on uh, midnight of the 1st of July. And I did not expect, I just thought it would be funny to see, well, let's see if anybody notices, you know. And I was like, maybe there's like one person who still has us in their feed and it'll pop up and that'll be funny. I did not expect that by like 6 or 7 a.m. that morning, there was already somebody who had noticed us. And then we started popping up in people's feed and people started talking about it on Twitter. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that we were still like an active feed after. I mean, it's been so long and I know everybody's changed devices and things get all like crosswired. I couldn't believe it. So that was fun to watch. It was a fun day. You know, in my app, it said it always had inactive podcast under our podcast and now it's moved up to irregular. So maybe this month will <laughs> even be regular. Who knows? that's funny that's like a scarlet letter of podcasting they slap on you just to make you feel bad that's right yeah maybe we'll get past that irregular stage and get back to being just a podcast yeah we aim to we aim to be around every month and then later in the episode we'll talk about maybe a little bit more than that yeah absolutely it's it's great to be back and man a lot has changed in the 10 years since 
lot has changed for you, <laughs> for sure. A lot has changed for me. Yes. And a lot has changed for the world. And it's crazy to think where we all were 10 years ago. <laughs> yes. We were all in a much different place than we are now. That's right. We were living in the same place. And now we we're were in the remote. same place. We just That's sound right. like we live in the same place. Yeah. I've been across uh, out to California and now down to Florida. And you've got a couple of young'uns. That's right. You know, the good thing about this time is it has allowed us to kind of get on our feet and get this started. So hopefully it'll be a little bit more sustainable. It's hopefully going to be a long haul for us. So any ideas and any words of encouragement are very welcome. So thanks a lot. So as we've said, we're going to visit some of the snowy patches of the Disney world. And we're going to visit a lot of different eras of the Disney company. We're going to start out with the 1970s with a great concept of a ride that we missed out on the enchanted snow palace yeah this is exciting this is a wonderful attraction that i really wish would have happened but we've got some great music from a disney legend that uh, aside from one d23 event hasn't been heard in the world in 40 years more than 40 years so that's exciting pretty exciting then we're going to summit the Matterhorn, the slopes of the Matterhorn, but it might not be the Matterhorn you're expecting. We're going to take a look at a idea for the Switzerland Pavilion at Epcot Center. Yeah, uh, this is another one really wished it would have happened. So we'll take a look and see what the pavilion would have been like and what the ride would be like. It's a very different attraction from the one you're familiar with. We're going to turn on Progress City TV and check out some figure skating tonight. In a very special special from 1992. Yeah, this this was uh, this was a, a new to me experience, and so uh, we will embrace the the art of ice skating and some other shenanigans. And finally, we'll have just a tidbit about the lost ski resort that Disney was planning. A couple of them actually uh, between the 1960s through the 1980s. And we'll just have to wait to get to that. But first, let's check in with Walt. Would you like some coffee, Mr. Disney? Yes, thanks, Black. You know, there are millions of human snowbirds who get the urge to ski and flock to the higher altitudes at the first sign of a snowfall. And many, like myself, just go to watch, ride the chairlift, and take colored pictures. that we were 30 years younger. There are also those who come to live and work in the snow resorts because they love the sport so much. They're so dedicated to skiing that they merely tolerate summer. Join us, Mr. Disney? Ah, uh, no thanks. I'll watch. As we said, we're here today to talk about wintry things, and the connection between Disney and winter sports really goes back a long way. Walt and Lily were skiers, and in the 1930s, Walt was skiing at Badger Pass when he met Austrian ski champ Hannes Schroll. Now, Schroll was the head of the Yosemite Ski School, and he and Walt became good friends. In 1938, Schroll and his business partners purchased some land in the Sierras near Donner Summit and the town of Truckee, and they intended to build a ski resort centered on two mountains, Hemlock Peak and Mount Lincoln. 
But Scholl was short on funds because they had been seized when Hitler had annexed Austria earlier that year. So he hit up Walt for funds to help buy the land, but unfortunately Walt was out of town at the time and missed the wire. A year later, when it became time to actually build the resort, Walt invested $2,500 and became one of the first stockholders of what became Sugar Bowl Resort. Schroll changed the name of Hemlock Peak to Mount Disney in honor of Walt's contribution and built a chairlift there that was actually the first in California. Once Sugar Bowl opened, it became a haunt of many celebrities, and Walt skied there with his family and even said that he at least once filled in for the lodge bartender. At one point, he even allegedly was going to film a documentary about the history of skiing at the resort, but that never happened. In November of 1941, Disney released The Art of Skiing, which was the first of Goofy's how-to shorts. The short is set at Sugar Bowl, and the lodge even makes an appearance in the film looking just like its real-life counterpart. Hannes Schroll was an accomplished yodeler, so Walt brought him in to record some vocals for the short. This is how Schroll became the first person to perform the now-iconic Goofy Holler, which debuted in this short. Walt and Lily even attended the California Ski Association's first annual Skiers Ball at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, where the art of skiing was screened on December 19, 1941. Walt eventually quit skiing, but continued to support events at the resort, such as the Disney Junior Challenge Trophy and the Sugar Bowl Perpetual Goofy Races for Children. Ironically, Sugar Bowl was also the site where Wayne Polson recruited Alexander Cushing to build a ski resort on his property in nearby Squaw Valley. Several years later, Cushing would recruit Walt Disney to create the opening and closing ceremonies for the 1960 Olympic Winter Games, which he had improbably secured for Squaw Valley. And that's a story that we will revisit in detail on a future show. But Walt wasn't done with the ski industry. One of the last major projects he tackled before he died was a ski resort in the Sierras called Mineral King. This year-round resort was budgeted at $35 million and was set to open in 1976. It would have been a cutting-edge facility, incorporating many of the advanced planning techniques also slated for the city of Epcot. Work for Mineral King continued even after Walt's death in 1966, and a master plan for the resort was approved by the Forest Service in 1969. But opposition to the resort by the Sierra Club and other concerns had slowly been building, as they wanted the valley to remain undeveloped and were worried about an access road to the property which would cross over National Park lands. By the early 1970s, Disney had scaled down the project, and the Sierra Club looked to tie up development in the courts for years to come, so eventually the company walked away from Mineral King. In 1978, Congress annexed Mineral King to Sequoia National Park. By then, Disney was attempting to build a similar project at Independence Lake, near Lake Tahoe. Unfortunately, as all the company's creative and financial resources were allocated to the construction of Epcot Center and Tokyo Disneyland, the Independence Lake project was put on ice in the late 1970s. Before Disney management could revisit the project after Epcot's opening, the company found itself in new hands, and Walt's dream of a ski resort was frozen for good. memory of wintertime long ago, of clear, crisp air, of new-fallen snow, of an etching of frost on a window pane, an echo of sleigh bells heard from the lane. 
kind of love December When the merry snowbirds chime We're together once upon a winter time Every single snowflake falling Plays a jingle down your spine Lovely weather once upon a winter time In 1977, veteran Imagineer and former animator Mark Davis had been having a difficult time getting projects off the ground. He was essentially creating ideas on spec, trying to get something cooking. The Enchanted Snow Palace was a project he was pitching for either Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom, with the idea that both parks can get hot, and it would be nice to have a place to cool off. He thought it would be great to have a show building cooled to around 67 or 68 degrees, so that people would feel like they were truly entering a winter wonderland. In the middle of 1977, he drew countless sketches for the attraction that he called the Enchanted Snow Palace, calling it the Snow Palace because he thought Ice Palace would make people think it was a skating rink. The attraction would have been a slow-moving boat ride similar to It's a Small World. Guests would wind past snowy scenes featuring winter animals and magical creatures, culminating in a visit to the court of the Snow Queen herself. The ride's aesthetic would take a page from the costumes of the Ziegfeld Follies and the choreography of Busby Berkeley to create a sense of grand spectacle. Along the way, you would see lots of different things. Mark was a prolific artist, came up with many sketches of little vignettes and little gags, and even cutaways of how the animatronics would work. He was always very thorough in how he would sketch out his gags, and that often included diagrams of the behind-the-scenes mechanics that would make them work. Along the way, you would see dancing fairies and arctic animals such as polar bears, wolves, foxes, and rabbits, all of them snowy white. A symphony composed of penguins would appear, all dressed in tuxedos. There were gnomes and trolls, and one fun piece shows giant snowflakes hanging above a river where cute animals float along on small, snowflake-shaped ice floes. There was even a cameo by Pablo the Penguin from the Three Caballeros, floating along with his little stove. Animatronics of mystical creatures would skate in circles with animals, while trolls, penguins, and polar bears sledded down a twisting mountain. Penguins sled down icy slopes and leapt into the water, only to reappear at the top of the slide and do it again. This all culminated in the approach to the Palace of the Ice Princesses and the Snow Queen, which is where the grand finale of the ride would take place. You'd be greeted by a dancing ballerina and a gallery of the princesses in costumes a la the Ziegfeld Follies, all draped in winter finery. At one point, you'd see the Snow Queen in a giant sled pulled by polar bears, and later you would find her waiting on her throne surrounded by snow owls. The whole ride would end with the midnight sun low in the sky and the rising aurora borealis. Mark Davis worked on these sketches throughout the summer of 1977, and in August of that year, he asked Disney legend Buddy Baker to create a short score for the attraction, which he could use as background accompaniment when he pitched the show. Unfortunately, Mark couldn't get any executive support for the attraction. He said that he was barely able to get them to even look at it, much less greenlight it. And so he abandoned the idea around August of 1977, and... Frustrated by the lack of traction he was getting for his incredible ideas, 
left Wed not long after. He always said he regretted not getting the Snow Palace project off the ground. It's, I mean, it's wild that the 70s were such a, his stuff was so good. And you think of the attractions that didn't get made. Yes. It's, I mean, Western River Expedition and this were just masterpieces of, you know, they're different in scale, but it's odd that neither got made. It really is. And, you, you know, you have to wonder what the thinking was at the time. Obviously, they were going in a more thrill-based direction with Space Mountain and Thunder Mountain. But still, I mean, Western River Expedition is still the great lost attraction, the great sequel to Pirates of the Caribbean that never was. And then you have this, you have a number of smaller projects that he worked on, a number of projects for the Carousel Theater kind of shows that he worked on, uh, some things for Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World that he worked on. And he was just, you know, he was, as I said, he was so prolific that he just cranked out the stuff just over and over again. And the fact that none of it gained any momentum is just crazy to me. I don't know if somebody had it in for him or what but just the quality of the art makes you really wish that some of these things had come to fruition yeah i mean just thinking about that atmosphere in the magic kingdom alone would would be very i mean you know it gets hot like you said it get and what a great way to cool off and change the scenery and then to have this great atmosphere would have been a really great thing to build off of yeah. Oh, just, you know, as someone who likes the cold, as I've said, and who hates the Florida heat, and it does get very, very hot. And it in the summer, it gets hot in California, too. This would have been a wonderful escape because, you know, people love to get out of the heat in Florida. Uh, everybody has their own favorite show they kind of escape to, a nice long show inside in the air conditioning that they can get out of the heat. And this would have been that, but really amped up because he wanted it to be like a long slow ride in the cool where people could relax so this would have been it didn't really have any plot it didn't have much of a story it was just pretty things in a pleasant environment and some nice music and some cool weather and it would have just been the ultimate no pun intended chill out attraction to just kind of kick back and see some pretty things and relax. And I don't know, take a nap. Maybe you want to take a nap. Who knows? It would have been very peaceful. Sign me up. Yeah, it would have been great. So as I said, rare for an attraction that didn't really reach a certain level of development. It certainly never got any executive approval or interest. But we have a bit of music for it. That's right. And it was done by the great Buddy Baker. It's no, nothing to sniff at. No, I know. Yeah, you're not calling in the scrubs. You're calling in the A-team when you call him Buddy Baker. So we mentioned Buddy a little bit in the last episode. And, of course, a lot of you know Buddy Baker. But I thought I would talk a little bit about him for those of you who don't. He was born in Springfield, Missouri in 1918. And after going to college, he was a jazz trumpeter in the big band era, but he was also a composer and arranger. He had a top 10 hit for Sam Kenton. Wow. He would move on to be a music director for the Bob Hope and Jack Benny radio shows, which I know will excite you, Michael. Oh, yes. Two of my all-time favorites. <laughs> right. 
So after that, he was kind of in and out of the academy, and he would be for the rest of his life. He would kind of dabble with teaching. But interestingly, before his work at Disney, one of his students was Jerry Goldsmith, who went on to great things. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's quite a pedigree. Uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, George Bruns, the great, brought Baker on to help in 1954 with scoring for Davy Crockett. And then Baker became the musical director for the Mickey Mouse Club in 1955, which sounds like a really interesting job because Jimmy Dodd would write a lot of the music, but he would arrange it all and deal with all the guest stars. And he would remain at Disney for 28 years. And even after that, he would work some with Disney. So here are a few of his achievements. According to various accounts, 40 to 50 films, 125 television shows, and most importantly, for our purposes, quite a lengthy resume of theme park attractions. He would even eventually serve as musical director for Wed Enterprises. In fact, for the first 10 years of Disneyland, only Baker and Bruns, their work was created for the park. After he retired in 1983 as the last major studio staff composer, he continued to work on Disney attractions. And here is a list of some of the attractions that he worked on. Haunted Mansion, World of Motion, Kitchen Cabaret, Adventure Through Inner Space, American Adventure, Impressions to France, If You Had Wings, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Carousel of Progress, Universe of Energy, Wonders of China, El Rio del Tiempo, and he even worked on Journey to the Center of the Earth and Sinbad's Seven Voyages for Tokyo Disney Sea. That really blows my mind that he was still working even as late as Disney sees development. That is wild. It is wild. And and he works in these attractions. You know, Carousel of Progress is probably a good, good, good example where he most likely worked with the Sherman Brothers music and kind of transposed it into his own compositions. Another good example of that is a Wonderful World of Color theme where he collaborated with them. They had written that song, and he kind of put it into the piece that we know and as he pointed out in an interview, he came up with the uh, second chorus, which is the color, color, color. So that's him, which oh, is pretty wow. cool. Yeah. A few other projects he was involved in, Donald in Mathmagic Land, which I was pleased to find out was a Cannes Film Festival Award winner. Really? <laughs> yes. And well-earned. Yes. Uh, the Winnie the Pooh movies, the Apple Dumpling Gang movies. Yeah. The Fox and the Hound and Summer Magic. So it's an exhausting resume. And he is such a cool guy. I mean, he is a real, he said his hero was Paul Smith, who was the old Disney orchestrator guy. And he is really the heir apparent and to this era, him and George Bruns. And, and they were all in kind of cahoots working together, which is just kind of a really unique and special thing to have a studio with all these talents working off each other working with each other and in the legacy and and how wide it was is is very impressive yeah absolutely and like you said he was the last of the staff composers of the major studio to have that sort of wide a wide a role and his influence was everywhere like especially in those last years of that he was working on theme parks you know, when you think of something like Epcot, where all the music was newly created, pretty much, and, you know, all the area music was newly arranged and created, the influence he had there was 
huge. Yeah, I mean, as you could tell from all the things that I, you know, basically everything at Epcot had something with him overseeing in some way, shape, or form. I think he gets a lot of credit for the Impressions de France arrangement that he did. He combined a bunch of French composers with his compositions in the middle of those. I know Ravel, who is featured in Impressions de France, was a big influence on him. So, you know, the combination of that influence with he he talks a lot about the Disney sound and how he can get right back into it. And there are secrets to kind of getting this Disney sound. And it seems like him, Paul Smith and George Bruns really kind of made that become a real thing for these several decades. So we found the score. And do you want to tell that story, Michael? Well, it was unearthed in the Buddy Baker collection, which is a set of papers at NYU. And we were lucky enough to have somebody who was able to get get their hands on it and get us a copy of these, which you wound up putting together, and we'll talk about that, and uh, wound up using it to kind of reconstruct a ride-through. It's hard to reconstruct a ride-through because there wasn't really an official like story there wasn't a script i i don't know if he had it really boarded out beyond sort of inspirational sketches but i kind of took the different sketches and kind of put them in an order that makes sense starting with the sort of orchestra warming up and everything then a lot of the animals then the magical things and then all leading to the court of the snow queen in her palace and just kind of put it in an order that made a little bit of sense and seemed to go along with the music. And uh, we used it at a D23 event several years ago now to showcase the art, Mark's artwork. So we were just really lucky to be able to dig this up and put something together that people hadn't heard in 40 years or whatever it was. I mean, the music plus these great illustrations, I Again, don't know how it gets turned down, but both are operating at a very high level, uh, Davis and Baker. This music is very French, as as I mentioned. It, it seems like just right in line with the kind of French Impressionism. And it is just a sketch. The score is pretty, pretty bare. So we just had to get a little creative and think about what would sound good. There are, there are three parts to it. So it was really fun just to kind of imagine what it would be like, you know? Well, like you said, there was a very wed sound, I feel, especially in the sort of golden era from the mid-60s to the early 80s, when they were really cranking out a lot of musical attractions uh, with a lot of really involved scores. There's There's a sound that's very distinctive and it even carries over in a lot of the movies from the era like you can tell a george bruns movie pretty well when you hear it so how do you go about scoring something to be in that style well i you know thinking snow and what's available to me i thought piano and vibraphone and a a little palm muted electric guitar seemed like a little 60s element to go along with the harp, uh, which we doubled those things. There were three acts to this music. So for the first one, it just had those elements. And then we added a flute and a Fender Rhodes, which is kind of like the Mr. Rogers piano. 
<laughs> and we had uh, Dale Baker come in and do percussion, which I was excited to find out very late to the fact that that was uh, Buddy Baker's middle name. So, And also the second Dale Baker mentioned on the podcast since we've been back. But Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, two for two. Yeah. Yeah, the effect really works. You got to have that flute in there for the full Buddy Baker effect, the mysterious flute. Right. And that's the, you know, where his compositions and impressions to France are happening are that flute, that lonesome flute. But Skylar Gudaz, who's a great artist, you know, she has made a bunch of great records since then, did the flute. And Dale did the percussion. Mark Simonson was on the uh, vibraphone. And, you know, the percussion we just added as a little layer of fun. And I kind of tried to do a little bit of what I would imagine a ride through would have. It was a fun project to do, and it was fun to imagine what the what it would have actually sounded like. I know, and hopefully a tape. Hopefully there's a tape somewhere. We don't know if they actually recorded it. I assume they did, but there's no telling if they actually did. I, I should say that a lot of this information comes from the excellent Mark Davis book by Chris Merritt and Pete Doctor that has some old interviews with Mark Davis and talks about some of these things and talks about how he had put together this presentation and sort of called in a favor from Buddy Baker to put together this score, which sort of uncovers the mystery about why there was a score for something that was so early in development. So hopefully there's a tape somewhere that exists that he used, but it's, it's still remarkable to me that he had such a problem getting executives to even listen to him much less uh, approve the thing. I mean, it's also amazing that this is a favor from Buddy Baker. I mean, the thought that must have gone into this, uh, even it's a short piece, but it's very well crafted and it's just impressive. Yes, it is. So shall we have a listen? I think we should. And I think if you have that Mark Davis book, you should just check out some sketches from that snow palace and, and float along with us. Exactly. I, I highly recommend that book to you no matter what, uh, that you get your hands on a copy as soon as possible. And crank up the AC, read along, and float down the river with your wintry friends.
beautiful Anheim mountain. Let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb. Don't be afraid of the beautiful Anheim mountain. Let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb. And if we fall, crash, bang, and die on terrible death, never mind. We've had the joy, the joy of the climb. Oh, don't be afraid of the beautiful Anheim mountain. Let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb. Let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb, let's climb. While the Matterhorn didn't make Walt Disney World's opening slate of attractions, it long remained on Disney Parkhead's Dick Nunes' wish list. In an interview given as Epcot rushed to completion in May of 1982, Nunes said that one of Disney's next big projects would be to bring the Matterhorn to Walt Disney World's Fantasyland. As Nunes described it, the Matterhorn would be sighted so that the Walt Disney World Railroad could pass through it, through caves where it would snow real snow. This was intended to provide a welcome respite for the Florida heat for Magic Kingdom visitors. Sadly, this never happened. Not long after Epcot opened came the management changes of 1984 and a huge shift in corporate priorities. But that wasn't the end of Nunes' quest to bring the icy Swiss peaks to Florida. In the late 1980s, negotiations were underway to bring a Swiss pavilion to Epcot's World Showcase. The negotiations eventually broke down around 1987, but two years later, Swiss diplomat Paul Studer said that talks had resumed and that things were looking good for a final deal. Studer spoke that March to a newly formed Swiss club in Orlando, which heavily supported the Epcot project. Disney spokesman Charlie Ridgway was less enthusiastic at the time, telling the press that, until we get a lot further down the road, I wouldn't call it likely and saying that the project, if it ever happened, was, quote, a long way from reality. But just a couple of months later, in May of 1989, Swiss Vice Chancellor Akil Casanova said that the Swiss cabinet had agreed that the government would chip in $10 million towards the sponsorship of the new pavilion if the Swiss private sector would match the funding. Ridgway again downplayed the possibility publicly. Despite Ridgeway's protests, however, inside Walt Disney Imagineering, plans were underway under the direction of Disney legend John Hinch to develop a Swiss pavilion complete with a 192-foot-high replica of the Matterhorn. Intended for a spot on the World Showcase promenade between Italy and Germany, the Swiss pavilion would dominate the area's skyline. So certain was Disney that the project would come to fruition, it was actually publicly announced in 1990 as part of the Disney Decade list of new theme park expansions. In the press release for the Disney Decade, it was promised that Epcot would soon see two new World Showcase pavilions, Switzerland and Russia, alongside Future World's Journeys in Space and a new George Lucas-created 3D film for the Magic Eye Theater. While sadly none of these projects, along with much of the Disney Decade, ever came to pass, we at least have a hint at what the Swiss Pavilion would have been like, thanks to a project overview binder that came into my hands a few years ago. So let's take a virtual walk through this spectacular pavilion and see what it had to offer. Jeff, what do you think about these plans? I am in awe of these plans. It was better than I thought. It's, it's a neat kind of juncture between an original Epcot World Showcase Pavilion and 
and the good design that came along in the mid nineties, the good examples of that design, it's, it's like a little bit of both. Yeah, it's really wild. I, I mean, I'm obviously a world showcase aficionado, uh, and just imagining walking through this space, regardless of the ride, just the shops and the restaurants and the placemaking would have been incredible. Yes. It, you know, I, I always thought that it was kind of redundant with Norway and the and Germany, somewhere in between there. I always thought Switzerland might be not on my list of things I would like to see, but after reading this, it definitely would be its own place and kind of a very unique pavilion. Yeah, all the like the natural details that we'll talk about. Uh, you know, fake fake nature, but amazing nature nonetheless. And uh, I just imagine sitting in the fondue restaurant at night, facing the lit up Matterhorn, and having some fondue in a Swiss setting would be so great. Seems like that would be great. So yeah. let's let's go there in our minds through the power of imagination. <laughs> It starts off by describing, quote, the rural countryside and neighboring Swiss hamlets skirting the Matterhorn provide the alpine flavor for the other elements of the pavilion. These elements comprise a small Swiss village and include merchandise shops, a restaurant, Swiss VIP area, and a tourism center. The village is nestled against a pristine lake and lush foothills that rise up below the Matterhorn. I'm in. Yeah, totally. Uh, the the lake, and you know, this is an area that would have a ton of water features, and the little alpine valley would look so fantastic. Yeah. So this uh, the Matterhorn is is oriented to provide the same view from the promenade and village that one would get from Zermatt, Switzerland. That's hmm. a good view. Great view. Guests approach the pavilion from the promenade where lacy evergreens grace the banks of mountain streams and other water features. So this pavilion would have the kind of what we would see later in the Wilderness Lodge, the flowing water throughout the pavilion motif, and it seems even grander here. Yes, lots of uh, stone bridges over little alpine rivers and the wilderness lodge is a good comparison. You definitely get the vibes of that natural area here. Let's start out in the village. Like we would, if we were approaching it, uh, the center street runs through the village. There are multi-story gabled buildings that line the street with a graceful clock tower fronting onto the promenade on the left. There are four shops and on the right, there is a 230 seat restaurant and you got to have the VIP lounge upstairs. There's a tourism center disguised as a rural chalet that sits in the foothills right outside of town. There is also a stage in the middle of town for yodelers or alpenhorn players with a statue of William Tell and his son. I like that detail. <laughs> the William Tell statue. <laughs> got to give it up to William Tell. So, Michael, what would these shops be? 
So from the front on the promenade where you have the clock tower, you have a clock, a music box, and gift shop all in one. This would have uh, an arched plaster ceiling and plaster walls with uh, fresco details. So this would all be very, you know, little Alpine village details, uh, lots of stonework and a tile floor, and it would have a major clock display. That would be the centerpiece of its little area. Next door, as we go further into the pavilion, is a wood carving and craft shop with a low-beamed ceiling with fresco details and half-timbered walls. It would be a kind of lightly colored, airy place, a light-stained casework with carved details, and an ingrain block floor, which is like a really dense wooden floor, which would be thematic for the wood carving shop. Next door is a candy, cookie, and gourmet food store. This would have a wood ceiling and a mosaic tile floor, casework stained with fanciful patterns, and it would have an open candy kitchen where they would uh, make candy on stage, kind of like you see today in the Caramel Kuche in Germany. But it would be in Switzerland first. And the last shop would be a clothing and accessories boutique. This would be really rustic with a wood beam ceiling with wood and plaster, carved details on the beams and stencil work on the wood surfaces. They would have those canton shields, those medieval-looking shields all along the soffit. And the casework would be painted with color variations. So it would be very colorful and rustic and have a wood plank floor. So you see each of these represents a kind of different, a different feel, but it all goes together in that alpine theme. And we see a lot of that across the street at the restaurant, a similar kind of idea where you're dividing space, but it's one space and part of a similar function. This restaurant seemed like it would be pretty incredible. Yes, they solved the problem of having a large restaurant. As we said, it was 230 seats, but they split it up amongst different dining rooms in these different buildings uh, from the outside. It looks like several different homes clustered together, a quaint one, a formal, a medieval, one, a hunting lodge. And the seats inside are divided up among these areas and are each individually themed to have dining rooms that reflect the buildings that are on the outside. So it's like each, each dining room has a different theme. But all seats are placed for views of either the Matterhorn or World Showcase Lagoon and they would serve authentic Swiss fondue. The seating, like as I said, was in different areas. Along the promenade view, it would be based on a 1920s lakeside resort with beam ceilings and decorative wood wainscoting, scenic murals and small pictures, and uh, it would have a raised platform for lagoon viewing. So this would be a very sort of pastoral setting. The waiting area and the upper lobby, which is where you would come into the restaurant, would have a more rough-hewn feeling with rough-hewn beams and the plaster ceiling, half-timbered walls, a stone stairwell and with wrought iron balustrade. And it would have medieval artifacts. It, it would have a very medieval feel, wood plank floors and those great leaded bottle glass windows. So it would, it, it would have that vibe going to it. The next room as you go back into the pavilion would be Town Square View Dining. And this was a small room with a cozy reading room ambience, they said. A vaulted plaster ceiling with painted details, plaster walls with scenic paintings above. And it would have a fireplace with stacked wood beside it and a bookcase and all sorts of hunting trophies and family artifacts. So this would be like a little parlor kind of room, not a big dining room. 
And finally, facing the mountain would be the chalet dining. This was made to look kind of like a barn. It had a barn roof with exposed wood trusses with uh, stencils on them. High windows for the view of the mountain, of course. Half-timbered walls with knotty pine siding. And it would have two raised platforms for dining. And it would be propped out with farm implements. So this was the real rustic dining experience. Oh, I should mention that the first floor below would be entrance and would have overflow queue for the Matterhorn attraction. Most of the dining areas are on the second floor. And on the third floor is a VIP lounge with its own VIP restaurant that would front out onto the promenade. You got to think this would be a uh, very popular spot if it was built today. The restaurant kind of wraps around the kitchen, so the views would have been excellent, and it doesn't seem like you could miss out looking on the Matterhorn or onto the World Showcase Lagoon. Yeah, it it's kind of a smart layout. They knew what they were doing as far as people wanting to see either illuminations out on the promenade or to see the mountain. One of the things they talk about was occasionally they would do, as they do in Disneyland, have mountain climbers climb the Matterhorn. So you would see that, or it would be lit up at night, so there would always be a view of something going on there. And so, as you said, every seat gets a good view, which is really smart. But count me in for the reading room, the town square view. That's, that seems like a winner for me. Yeah, the rendering for that's really nice. looks really cozy. Yeah. So moving away from the town, we're going to enter the foothills. And this sounds just excellent. Uh, Placemaking and landscaping wizardry. There's a rustic trail, their words, that leads from the town to the foothills. And these foothills were created from rock work and terraced landscaping on the front and sides of the mountain to obscure the base of the ride and the structure of the Matterhorn, to shield views from neighboring pavilions, smart, and provide a sense of perspective and distance. The foothills also provide space for the queue for the ride and the pre-show. And we see a giant 57-foot waterfall that spills into an alpine lake between the mountain and the village. Now, what an incredible thing to imagine. Yeah, this would have looked great. It looks great. Uh, The views in the rendering from the promenade looks amazing. It looks amazing up close. And having that little lake there to provide space between the village and between the mountain is really smart. And again, just having this little meadow with a waterfall, oh, would have looked so nice. And we'll see when we get into the ride uh, momentarily that they use this space to get in and out of the ride and make it a kind of seamless transition but also imagining a kind of breath between the spaces is, is just a great plan. There's a lot of, yeah, like you said, there's great renderings of it and you can really picture it. It seems like it would have been a cool place to be at night, especially. Oh yeah, that would be great. Absolutely. All right. So the Matterhorn would not be the same as the Disneyland Matterhorn. I've always wondered it. It's quite different. In fact, (laughs) Very, very different. But it is similar, uh, almost identical, in fact, to Disneyland's Space Mountain as far as layout. It's slightly modified, so it has a slower final deceleration. It's a a two-and-a-half-minute ride. It was expected to have an hourly capacity of 2019 guests, and the ride vehicles would also be based on the Disneyland design of the time. 
two six-seat vehicles per train. So the mountain would be 200 feet in diameter at the base, 192 feet high. That's, that's pretty big. And they mention it has up to 96 feet of clear space inside the facility and even have kind of a cross-section graphic of it, which looks like a tiny space mountain inside this giant Matterhorn. Yeah, it's funny. It's like the, um, I guess you would call it the weatherproofed or weather-safe part, which is the, the real show building. And then they have the giant mountain sort of on top of that. So, yeah, it is like Space Mountain inside a Matterhorn. So you got to wonder what, what they would build above it. Uh, you know, another basketball court? Who knows? I know. You could have a couple of basketball courts. The pitch booklet outlines two concepts for the show featured in the mountain. And boy, I was surprised. <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah, this is not what I would have expected at all. <laughs> no. Both begin on a rural mountain trail through the foothills where guests, quote, stumble upon a mountainside shepherd's shack, a hidden entrance to a secret Swiss Olympic bobsled training camp. The queue and load areas are intended not only to introduce the attraction story, but to show off Switzerland's technological capabilities. <laughs> I love this. That's like a running thread throughout the, the yeah. pre-show and the post-show is... <laughs> Switzerland's technological capabilities. I love that it sets up their Olympic program to be like a James Bond villain. Right. Why is it secret? Why? Well, yeah. I mean, I assume all bobsled teams train. Why? Why is this hidden in a mountain lair? This is already a funny kind of. You know, the the World Showcase pavilions notoriously had this problem of trying to play up the traditional view of the country to the guest, but the current modern futuristic version of the country to the country to get the money <laughs> it's, it's yeah totally and you can totally see that uh, that dynamic here yes okay so following a climbing path through snowy caverns guests see storage alcoves with ski and climbing gear with bobsled parts so yeah it's feeling familiar yes exactly Quote, attentive guests might hear echoes of a yodeling cow herd among his bell-clanging companions, or even call out through an opening to hear their own voices echoing for miles. And my favorite detail was this, quote, <laughs> refreshingly pure ice water issues forth from an underground stream into a small pool before continuing on. Guests can quench their thirsts at adjacent themed and super chilled drinking fountains i love that i'm in count it me sounds in good it also is a funny detail to harp on yeah <laughs> but i love that opposed. they're super chilled yeah <laughs> authentic mountain water yeah uh, it would be the place to go for thirsty visitors to get that super chilled mountain water gotta get that super chilled all right so we're gonna get on the ride Let's start with what we're going to call, and they call, Story A. So the guests exit into a faux outdoor setting, great, along a wooden walkway and avalanche shelter against a granite rock face. At a chalet, and once they pass through a security checkpoint, of course, right, ahead of its time, guests learn that it is an ultra-high-tech command center for the bobsled training camp. <laughs> Technology. Yes, because they are a high-tech society. Yes, 
It's not just yodelers and alpenhorners and William Tell no, anymore. No, no, no. Okay, so video monitors and display panels report course activity, weather, competitors, times, and accidents. Wall panels show off course configurations and new bobsled designs. Windows provide exterior views of the mountains. And uh, <laughs> a detail that also that I like that they uh, included here was a first aid rescued facility and the coach's office are in view beyond the loading area. And it is here that the coaches debrief returning riders and instruct new trainees. So we're really on a mission here. Really on a mission, the coaches, you have to wonder what celebrity would play the coach. (laughs) Because I'm assuming the way they talk about it, okay, so the load area, guests unload and load in the same spot to increase efficiency. So they've got it fronting onto this first aid facility, which I like, and the coach's office, the windows looking out. I'm assuming this is a projection effect. That in the windows of the coach's office, the coaches appear to give you your instructions, to welcome people back, and to give instructions to the new riders. I'm guessing that's what ha- what's happening. There's a few things. I like that there's so much faux outdoor things, because World Showcase does that well. But this also seems like a kind of, you know, I think of a lot of rides that I don't like as much that have, you know, heavily storied load areas this might be the the germ of you know what what's gonna what's the story gonna be here the- yeah you can see like the propped out coach's office with <laughs> he was just here there's his cocoa and right. like his whatever and like hidden references to like third man on the mountain or whatever right. and uh you know he'd have a wacky name and as i said would be played by some celebrity in the video so it really is a kind of a preview of things to come. So Michael, take us on the Matterhorn story A. All right. So as you said, there are they give us two storylines and it's increasingly clear that one is the preferred storyline, the other is probably a budget storyline that they have just in case. Both versions of the ride would use blacklight scenes, cold air blasts and super screams chilled? and effects super chilled air cooling. Uh, the A storyline would also feature numerous audio animatronic figures. So ah. it, we see the difference there. Yes, yeah. yes, I see. So version A begins as guests veer off onto the journey of no return as the bobsled run is labeled. No. And then they begin three lifts that are on simulated outdoor cliff ledges. Again, like you said, there's a lot of this outdoor for indoor. That's because n- unlike Disneyland, none of this ride was on the outside of the mountain. From the outside, you wouldn't hear roller coaster screams and whatnot. Uh, you wouldn't see the cars going down. It was it was more authentic. So all the ride took place on the inside of the mountain. So anytime where you were supposed to be outdoors, it was actually fake indoors, which is fine by me. Yes, yes. You would go, as I said, you would go through three lifts uh, and then go through carved tunnels before sending guests down steeply sloped and curving bobsled runs. Now, the first of these lifts would have panoramic views of distant mountains and glaciers off in the distance. Oh, I wish. Yeah. The second was a high-tech tunnel, of <laughs> yeah, course. Of course, yeah. With a maintenance bay, and it would give you your final course assignments. And there are jokes. We've got jokes. 
guests pass by a first aid hut where a paramedic is trying to open a locked door. He's locked out of his hut, but there's a dog inside, St. Bernard, with his head and his tail sticking out opposite windows, and he's warm and happy on the inside. That would have truly been uh, Mark Davis's last laugh. I know. A little a little gag in there. Right. And then you go up lift three, which would be a high-tech starting gate. So you begin going down this curving bobsled run until uh, you see an avalanche checker pull herself out of the way. She's in the track. She jumps out of the way. Then around a turn, you see a bobsled that's overturned in the path, and there are twitching legs sticking out of a snowdrift, <laughs> which is a detail I would like to see very yes. much. Uh, so they've had an accident. They're in the way, and the other bobsled rider is waving at you to stop your oncoming sled. Now, to avoid the collision, your sled swerves left into a mountain crevice where it's nice and dark, and there are sparks and scraping noises coming off the sides of your vehicle. <laughs> So it's very exciting. Yes, thrill a minute. Yeah. Then you go into a large cavern of ice crystals where light is coming through a small opening in the mountain, and it refracts off of a towering ice crystal, and this provides a rainbow-colored light show in this oh. big cavern in the middle of the mountain. You're torturing me. Yeah, I know. This is one of those nice, like, central areas in a ride. You think of, like, knots and the uh, Calico train where... There are multiple vehicles like in the same sort of space, in the same right. sort of cavern, and this has that vibe. As you're leaving an onrushing sled, another ride vehicle is coming right at you, but you veer away at the last second, averting yes. disaster. Then there's a blast of cold air, super chilled air, and past an opening in the mountain, an avalanche appears coming down the mountain. So you swerve away from that. You enter a glacial cave where there are giant ice structures all around. And then you pass back into a previous cavern uh, where you were going to run into the sled before. Now you're coming at it from the other angle and you duck under the other sled's track. You escape from all this havoc by popping through a waterfall and apparently coming outside of the mountain. Although, again, it's fake outside. And back onto the bobsled track. And you get back to base. There are cheering coaches and teammates. They welcome you back. You get back to the command center, and a big display shows that you've beaten the course record. And the wow. coaches come and congratulate you and say goodbye. So I guess they're just continually beating records on this ride. If you're loading and they're congratulating the previous people for beating the record, and then you beat yeah, their right? record. Uh, they didn't think that out. Uh, these are the things that you have to sort out in, in this process, yes. I mean... That sounds incredible. That is not at all what I expected from this ride. Yeah, it sounds really, really nice. Lots yeah. of snow and effects, lots of lighting effects, and uh, some gags in there, too. So that's fun. Then there's story B, which I call uh, Baby Test Track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were absolutely right in saying this was like the precursor to test track absolutely it's uh, it's stuck around nothing dies at imagineering i guess and this <laughs> was one of them all right so entering the same way as the first one but after guests enter the mountain through the foothills cavern they pass deeper in the mountain through granite caves they pass a security checkpoint again gotta keep the security checkpoint it's a top secret base here and 
At that checkpoint, they discover an immense ultra high tech command center where several roller coaster like stimulated bobsled runs challenge competitors. It's high tech, Michael. It is very high tech. This one's so high tech, you're not even going on an actual bobsled. You're going on a simulator. I mean, it could be, could have been in Future World, really. Um, and, <laughs> it's anyway. true. Deep in the mountains, safe from electrical interference, sensitive uh, instruments measure vital signs, human endurance limitations, and reactions to stimuli. Sensors in the bobsled-like vehicles send informations via telemetry to the command center displays. I like that they came up for a reason why it's in the mountain. You got to escape that EM interference. (laughs) We're so sensitive. Swiss precision. So designers use all the info collected to create new bobsled designs and more challenging courses. The latest designs are posted on the walls of the room. Across from the load area. Again, we have a little load area explanation. Across from load area, a first aid facility and... Data analysis and storage station are in view. Physiological technicians debrief returning riders and give final instructions to new competitors before they head out. So lab coats are on now instead of the whistles and uh, baseball caps. Yeah, this is all for science, not for sport. So the first lift is a telemetry continuity check station. I can't even say that without laughing. That ensures that all vital information is being successfully transmitted to the command center. The second lift calibrates all body measurement, pulse, brainwave, adrenaline. And these are displayed via readout monitors along the walls of the lift. Next are the Belgian blocks. No way. (laughs) And the last lift is course assignment and starting gate. So we're finally going to get to do something here. The bobsleds, this is a quote, the bobsleds plummet through darkness and pass by several surrealistic, quote, computer-generated scenes, exaggerating the sense of speed. Unexpected situations pop up, analyzing riders' reaction to time to unforeseen events. So I want to know what several surrealistic computer-generated scenes mean. This, as I thought about it this is space mountain meets bumble boogie from (laughs) i don't know if it's make mine music or melody time whichever one that one's in it's the bumble boogie dark ride inside the matterhorn this is super weird it's all like uh surrealistic dark ride scenes there are no real sets or animation it steals a couple of gags from Big Thunder because mm-hmm. you start off with blinking, bobbing bat eyes and whirling, screeching bats in two different rooms. So that's kind of a little derivative. Uh, but then there's a tubular waveform weaving across the track. Whoa. And it says that bright spots in the wave chase the vehicles and make modulated, continuous tones. So this is kind of like ImageWorks roller coaster <laughs> right. or something. There are five giant cones of colors that the car goes through, and it makes a tone as you go through each of these giant cones. I don't know what that's supposed to symbolize. Uh, In one of the rooms, there would be overhead bars with, above the track, these sort of rectangular bars. And as he passed under them, it would make xylophone sound effects. (laughs) So it, it really is the package feature 
dark. Is bobsledding that crazy? I mean, (laughs) you begin to hallucinate. (laughs) It might make sense for the space pavilion, but. And here are things, I know. Then uh, there's sort of a finale. Oh, this isn't the finale. There's uh, brightly colored rings around the track, and they get closer as you go along. And there's chase lighting, and the tones increase in pitch, and it's supposed to make you feel like you're going faster and faster because they're getting closer together. And the tones are going up. I, this can't be good from a like audiology perspective. <laughs> right. It would be a little like harsh. And then finally, there's a black lit wall ahead of the cars. It's not like a like a literal wall. It's like um, I don't even know what you would call it. Uh, just a really funky black lit rectangle. Anyway, a wall ahead of the cars. You would hear screams and crashing noises, and see flying pieces go flying off as your car goes through the wall, which isn't really a wall. It's just a projection. <laughs> and then, of gotcha. course, we get back. But yeah, gotcha. Back at the command center, uh, you see a stopwatch showing off all the riders' times, and you get out. Future Worlds Matterhorn. Yes, absolutely. That sounds interesting. It's like Videopolis Matterhorn. <laughs> it would make the inevitable overlay, like, really. I didn't. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you could have 80s night play some uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, sure. Oh, well, you know, they could always do that with Rock and Roller Coaster if they're looking to retheme it. True. True. So, either or, that's for you to decide. I'll go with story A, but now that you've taken me through story B, that sounds, it's more appealing. I, I'm going with story A on this one, but story B would have been very interesting for sure. Just imagining that, presenting that to Swiss diplomats. And like, yes. You know, you know, and uh, then you go through the xylophone. So yeah. e- either way, we're leaving this ride and we're going to enter the post-show. And they both exit through a rock tunnel that becomes a Swiss technology showcase exhibit showing high-tech products and industrial techniques. Quote, derived from the precision and attention to detail inherent in the Swiss work ethic. <laughs> That's a little sucking up in the pitch booklet, I feel like. I just imagine this, you know, uh, our our parents owned a drugstore and there was this Timex watch <laughs> lit up case. <laughs> yeah, the little like spinner, <laughs> uh, electric this spinner rack. Yeah. Being like a cave full of spinner cases with models or, you know, watches or whatever. You know, swatches, yeah. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, Yeah. they could have really got the swatch tie in there for a while. Right. So I I have no idea what that would be or how big it would be, but you got to have that technology in there. Yeah, I love the idea of like little lit lit glass cabinets set into the rock walls with the little (laughs) uh, watch, rotating watch, (laughs) counter watch display. That's exactly what I imagined. So the guests depart the mountain through a wooden footbridge sitting over a lake that leads to a shaded wilderness walk featuring blossoming flowers and chirping birds and ends at the rustic and welcoming Tourism Info Center. My, my, how wonderful that would have been. And the Info Center would have been nice, too. Uh, The renderings show a nice little 
rustic cabin with a fireplace on the inside and big map of Switzerland on the wall and tables and chairs where you could sit by the fire. So it would have been really nice. So that is one version of what would not become to be the Switzerland Pavilion at World Showcase. Uh, I hate that we missed out on this. This sounds like an excellent addition and exciting, but not too big or, I mean, it just seems perfect. Right. It fits well into World Showcase, even better than just plopping the Matterhorn as it was, which was what I used to think it would have meant, just putting the Matterhorn from Disneyland in there. It takes it a step beyond that. It's a little fancier, and uh, it would have been a great fit. And unfortunately, you know, they announced it as an officially a thing that was coming, and it just kind of vanished. And I, I don't know why. If anybody who's listening, you know, worked on that or knows anything about it, let us know. But uh, sadly, it went away because I think it would have been a great addition to World Showcase. Jeff, what is playing on Progress City Public TV today? Today we're going to be watching the Disney Christmas Fantasy on Ice from December 1992. A wonderful world of Disney special on CBS. CBS. I had never seen this until you brought it to my attention. And I had totally forgotten that the anthology show wound up on CBS because... It was on a- ABC, like you said, then it was on NBC, and that's when it started getting to be like real big Eisner-era production level. And then I totally forgotten it wound up at CBS, so it hit all the big three. That's right. I have to give credit to singer-songwriter Skylar Gudaz, who was mentioned earlier on the Snow Queen piece, for, for tipping me off to this, because I had never seen this either. And she pointed out a scene to me, which we will discuss later. But this intro is pretty cool. You've got a little monorail coming straight towards the camera. And my favorite part is you have a spaceship Earth with the Model T from Absent Minded Professor flying around it. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great shot. Uh, I love this era because they use... Uh, they they not only use new things that were trendy at the time, but they also do the deep dive into the old school kind of stuff. So you've got absent-minded professor going around Spaceship Earth. You've got little Fantasia action. So right, they're not afraid right. to embrace the past. Well, and you can see what a difference four years makes from the 1988 special. Uh, Disney is certainly a zeitgeist player. They have... Will Smith dancing in front of Sleeping Beauty's castle and Elton John and Mickey. And then, of course, they have the Little Mermaid music. Yeah. 
lots of Roger Rabbit action. Oh, yes, of course. I also like the part where the uh, bee from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is coming at the camera and Mickey slaps his hands over it because he's scared of the bumblebee. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, speaking of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Roger Rabbit, we have a great intro by Michael Eisner for this special. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is a good one. In the pantheon of Eisner intros, this is this is quite a one. Of which there are many. He's in front of the Michael Graves uh, Disney office executive building on the Disney lot, uh, the one with the seven drawers. And he has a little blank red baseball cap yeah it's like you do red flag (laughs) right and then uh he sports some aviator sunglasses with mickey saying what a dude to him then they pull the age-old trick of having him rollerblade out of the shot and then they cut to another shot with a guy and red baseball cap and aviator sunglasses doing all these crazy rollerblading tricks yeah, it's so good that he put on that hat and uh, aviator glasses like Michael Eisner was wont to do. I also love that he does this act. He like jumps over like a fake hedge and there are like two dudes dressed like studio executives like walking around in like fancy suits. So it's it's a little bit of Hollywood <laughs> magic there on the back lot. And he conveniently goes off camera and then comes back on. And it is Michael Eisner. All the, it was him all the time. It was him all the time. Who knew? So finally, we have the introduction to this special. Walt Disney presents Disney's Christmas Fantasy on Ice. Starring Olympic gold medalist Brian Boitano and three-time world champion Kurt Browning, silver medalist Peter and Kitty Carruthers, gold medalist Gordiva and Grinkoff, gold medalist Scott Hamilton, Bronze medalist Nancy Kerrigan, gold medalist Katarina Vick, also starring Bronson Pinchot, and your favorite Disney friend. Yes, Bronson Pinchot. The name you think of when you think of all these great figure skaters. You know, I think uh, Perfect Strangers was on ABC, so he's so famous that he's jumping networks now. He's so in demand. Wow. And we will see through this special, he has quite a range to him. But So this is in 1992. This was the last year the Olympics were the same year, the Summer and Winter Olympics, that is. Uh, It was the Albertville Olympics. And I feel like figure skating was really coming into its own in the culture. Of course, we were two years away from the Nancy Kerrigan story and the Lillehammer Olympics. But a a lot of the figure skaters here had kind of made their hay in the Calgary Olympics four years previous, but all of them were kind of still pretty relevant. Yeah, it was, it's weird. Like how much I feel like figure skating was just in the culture at the time. Like maybe it was just us and like what we were exposed to, but it was a big deal. And like all these people were super famous and maybe it was just because of like the East and West rivalry, like the U S Soviet rivalry I don't know what it was about, but it seems like it was a much bigger deal than it is nowadays. Well, you know, either 1992 or 1993, you and I attended a figure skating event at yes. the Charlotte Coliseum, if you recall. Yes, with many, probably many of these same players, in fact. That is true. That is true. So, 
hey, why didn't we watch this special when we were growing up? I know. I have no I no memory of it even existing, but it seems like it would have been highly relevant at the time. The odd thing about this special to me is that you think about these specials and, and you think about park footage, and there is very little park footage here, but we do start out on Main Street USA with Bronson Pinchot and his niece, Alice, who refers to him as Uncle Brawny. And she just is really uh, wearing him out. She wants more rides. Dragging him by the arm. More rides, Uncle Bronny. She wants to go to Splash Mountain. She wants to see Mickey's Toontown. But Uncle Bronny needs a fun break. And he wants to tell her a famous award-winning story. But, Uncle Bronny, you've never won an award, she says. Burn. Little showbiz joke there. Yeah. So he wants to tell her about the time it snowed in Disneyland. So he starts off. Mickey and Minnie, Snow White, Dopey, Belle and the Beast, go to find Jack Frost, who is played by none other than Bronson Pinchot. Yeah. Introducing the role. And, you know, it's shocking he never got the callback for Santa Claus 3. It's true. Because he really, uh, he, uh, really turns it up. To 11 here. Yes. It is something else to see this portrayal. He has a kind of sped up voice. He has little, uh, look like sawed off two liter bottles of snow that say Tahoe and Sun Valley. He is uh, grabbing Bill and Snow White's noses with squeaky noises. So that's kind of weird. Yeah, that's a recurring gag that's kind of unpleasant. Yes. But the thing they're looking for is to get a point of the snowflake from the six guardians of the snowflake in their respective ice worlds. <laughs> yeah, it's a conceit like from, you know, some sort of Japanese video game yes. or it's like the forgotten kingdom hearts game where you have to go to, to six different snow worlds and get the point of the snowflake from each guardian. And so I, I can picture this being a sequel to Adventures in the Magic Kingdom or something like that. I think that might be better than what we have. Yeah. Although I like Jack, I, I don't know where they shot this, but they shot it like in a real like mountain area with real snow. And uh, like it's like Jack Frost is living in Eisner's Aspen Lodge <laughs> or something. It's like Eisner let them use his house for the <laughs> right. for the weekend or something. Could be, could be. So we go to the first ice world and, you know, like you do, you have to start with Snow White. And so there's a Snow White medley, all performed as Seven Dwarfs performed by Scott Hamilton, the famous figure skater. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like something from the 70s, really. Yeah, this could have been on one of the 70s specials, without a doubt, especially his like really kind of upsetting dopey impersonation. Yes. Yes. And there's a, uh, weird whistle. Why you work synth hoedown version. It's vaguely, uh, main street electrical parade or something, but yeah. it's like bluegrass, but with a midi harmonica. <laughs> yes. Which <laughs> is always notorious. That midi harmonica. Then we cut to Carol of the bells with Nancy Kerrigan in a very formal setting with chandeliers and a pianist. And, you know, of course, Nancy Kerrigan has Carol of the Bells. That just seems, 
that seems strangely fitting for her that she would get Carol of the Bells. All of this is very on the nose so far. Yeah. Then we have Kurt Browning, Canadian skater. He performs some to the Nutcracker and gives Snow White and Dopey their first point of the snowflake. So level one achieved. Level one complete. Your snowflake is in another castle. That's right. Cut back to Jack Frost. He's with Chip and Dale. <laughs> he shows them a snow village and and we are transported to the snow village in real life, but not after some real high speed talking with Chip and Dale and Jack Frost. Yeah. This Jack Frost impersonation is really I mean, he's in tights, which is always upsetting, and he's doing like little improv bits. And and just the whole makeup thing, it's it's really a lot to handle. It's like really bad Robin Williams. I thought of Robin Williams a lot in this because that is totally what it totally what he was shooting for without any of the good stuff. Yeah. And this snow village, he's got it set up like a little train set and they do like a blue screen effect where, well, at first they look and there's like a sleigh of like kids that comes on like singing jingle bells or whatever. And then it cuts up and like Chip and Dell are in the sky above them looking down. Right. Yes, that is what happens. And this was shot at a lodge, which maybe this is where his place was shot, but a lodge in Sun Valley, Idaho. Uh, A ski resort. Yeah. I have been through Sun Valley, Idaho on a tour one time, but it was in the summer, so I missed out on all this goodness. But it does look very snowy. It's here where we find Peter and Kitty Carruthers. And they do a Christmas medley, and the kids join in with Santa Claus. But Chip and Dale don't get their snowflake. It's a ripoff. I know. We have more Nutcracker Suite with Gordiva and Grinkoff, and they were an ice dancing duo. And actually, Grinkoff passed away just a few years later in 1995, which led to another airing of this special with a kind of tribute to him after their ice dancing chip and dale get their second point and we are transported back to jack frost's cabin and we have bell and the beast timely a lot of sound effects and he's uh making some slush oh yeah and some snow muck from midtown manhattan and frost ah uh, you know you gotta have the new york in there somewhere twist that dagger man jokes So this is kind of when we transition into a little bit of promotion for the animated features. It's right in the middle of the Disney Renaissance. So this section is a Beauty and the Beast section, which plays the Peabody Bryson and Celine Dion version and has some a lot of animated footage in it. Yeah, they do a lot of cutaways to uh, characters watching them skate. And this is Brian Boitano and Katarina Witt. And eventually, the footage of them returns, and they're blue-screened into the ballroom, which is very fancy. Very fancy. They're really working with the blue screen here. And they get a snowflake just like that, so that was pretty easy. It's getting easier and easier to get these points. I'll tell you something weird about this is you mentioned that the show re-aired after Grinkoff passed away in the sort of later 90s. They have both versions on YouTube. When I was trying to find this to watch on YouTube, I I realized that there was a difference. And in the later version, they cut out from this Beauty and the Beast, they cut out Brian Boitano entirely. 
I don't know what um, he had done to cross them. Man. Wow. And instead replace it with a musical number with Scott Hamilton doing The Twelve Days of Christmas. Oh, boy. With, uh, I think, Pooh and Eeyore, like, watching in the <laughs> distance. More uh, Scott Hamilton. Yeah. The, wow. He drew the short straw and got that number. So I don't know why they cut out Boitano, but uh, in the original, yeah, they, they have Boitano and my dear Katarina together. Wow. So, little variations. If you're looking for this on YouTube, get the right one. That's right. The The original edit. Yeah. So, mercifully, we're transported back to Disneyland, but we're in Mickey's Toontown as Bronson Pinchot asks, where are we? And she says, we're in Mickey's Toontown where Mickey's friends live. <laughs> Timely. And then we get the the great duo of Roger Rabbit and Goofy that have to go to the magic forest, the underwater forest. And you know, Roger Rabbit and Goofy, a pairing that sadly, historically, very underused. Seems like a natural. Does seem very natural. The underwater forest seems not so natural. No, but, seems like a stretch. Right. We have a similar kind of mixed media presentation with Under the Sea with Brian Boitano and has footage a little bit more blue screen. And then the real highlight. So very true. The reason I chose this special, we are transported to a foggy, snowy forest. And if you get a chance to watch this, but don't have the time to watch it all, set your timer to 34 minutes 50 seconds and enjoy your moment of zen you know we're we've had christmas songs we've had we've had snow white we've had a couple of current disney songs and then we have this song which is also a christmas song a little lesser known i wonder as i wonder as performed by percy faith in 1954 yeah you got to wonder the production meeting that happened to let this in. It is because everything, as you said, very Christmas, very current Disney, you know, Eisner finger on the pulse of the modern world. And uh, then somebody dips into the dips into the vault and says, I know what the kids would like. A little bit of Percy Faith from the good old days, which I'm not complaining. And in fact, no, not at all. You've got the Percy Faith. You've got one of the true loves of my youth, Katarina Vitt. Yes. Uh, In a a cloak. In a cloak in a foggy, snowy forest. I mean, that is, I'm sold. That's all you need to tell me. So we're going to put a little bit of this song on. Let it marinate. let Let it make you be peaceful. Let it make you look this up and find this thing. But here is I Wonder As I Wonder by Percy Faith.
you know, Michael, I wonder as I wonder, has a little connection to where our family is from in the North Carolina mountains. Oh, really? Yes. It's actually an old folk hymn that was fleshed out from a song fragment found by uh, folklorist John Jacob Niles. And it was very close to where our family is from in the North Carolina mountains. He was in Murphy, North Carolina. Oh, wow. It's about as far out as you can get in North Carolina, and he was attending a fundraising meeting held by evangelicals who had been ordered out of the town by the police. Well, I find that surprising. Me too. <laughs> Here's his quote. A girl had stepped out to the edge of the little platform attached to the automobile. She began to sing. Her clothes were unbelievably dirty and ragged, and she too was unwashed. Her ash blonde hair hung down in long skeins. But best of all, she was beautiful. And in her untutored way, she could sing. She smiled as she sang, smiled rather sadly, and sang only a single line of the song. Wow. Wow. So Niles had her repeat the fragment as as much as she could a couple of times and, and paid her for each time. And he left with some fragments and put it together and he performed it in Brasstown, North Carolina, which is on the other side of where, where we're from. So, who knew? Well, that is unexpected. Connection. So we hope you've enjoyed this peaceful moment. Snow-filled Katerina Vitt as she oh gives uh, Roger and Goofy, those lucky dogs, their snowflake point. And I will say about this number, she, you know, she does her skating, but you know, when I say like the snowfield forest, they actually have like the rink that she's on. They have like little fake trees and little snowy, like plops, like just all <laughs> around. So she's having to skate around between like all these trees. And I thought, I thought that was pretty impressive that she yes. didn't, you know, like run into anything. Yes. All impressive. That is a moment in time from Disney TV specials. Yes. Then we go back to the Disney Renaissance with the future at this time release, uh, Aladdin. And they have the Peebo Bryson, Regina Bell version of A Whole New World in the snow with Aladdin and Jasmine. And this has <laughs> uh, Gordita and Greenkoff again. And they give Mickey and Minnie a point of the snowflake. So we're moving fast now, but we're not done. We have Donald and Pluto back at Sun Valley and Scott Hamilton in his vest and bow tie with mm -hmm. sax player Tom Scott performing Have Yourself a Very Merry Christmas. And boy, is this a number. Very uptown. Yeah, it is. This is the, this is the smooth licks. Right. This is, oh, those Disney nights. Right. And there's a lot of Hamilton and the sax player, Tom Scott, on the ice, just kind of riffing off each other a little bit. Yeah, doing yeah. a little a little skating jazz. This guy, Tom Scott, was everywhere in the 70s. Michael, do you know he was on Ringo Starr's record, Ringo? Really? He was on George Harrison's record, Dark Horse, and another one what? that I can't remember. And he was a member of the Blues Brothers. He was everywhere in the 70s. Wow. What a pedigree. So he's got a name. Scott Hamilton has a name. These are two legends on the ice. Yeah. Legends of their own respective crafts. Yes. 
Also, we've got this Pluto. You mentioned it's Donald and Pluto. This is a Pluto that I don't remember ever seeing. He's got antlers and a red nose. Ah, you don't see the red nose that often. You never see the red nose uh, Rudolph Pluto ever. Yeah, yeah. So they have all the points of the snowflake. And we're back at Disneyland outside Sleeping Beauty Castle at night. Little Alice wants to know, did it snow, Uncle Bronny? And he goes and gets some popcorn like you do, leaves her by herself. And Snow White and Mickey appear magically, present a giant plastic snowflake, which they fling into the air in slow motion. Your yeah, favorite, this is Michael. a nice shot. Yeah. Nice shot. I, I, you see why he goes to get his popcorn because he gets to drop his popcorn in shock and it snows at Disneyland. It snows at least within the few inches in front of the camera yes. where they are dumping like snowflakes. Kind of on one side of the frame, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the snowflake like explodes. It, there's like a cut, it explodes in the air and uh, snow comes falling down. Ah, oh, so that time it snowed at Disneyland, we got to see it. So what do you think about the Christmas fantasy on ice, Michael? Oh, it was a fantasy, and it was on ice. This yes, was, that's true. again, I don't know how I missed it uh, when this happened. And uh, my only hope is that Bronson's monogrammed Uncle Brawny mouse ears are in the Disney archives. I only <laughs> hope that those have been preserved somewhere. You would think, you would think. Yeah, but this was Quite a uh, quite a journey. Quite a journey. I would watch it all again for that little moment in the middle. Magical. True magic. Very magical. Absolutely. So what we have next for you is a little surprise and perhaps a little indication of the future direction of the Progress City Radio Hour. Over the years, I've had a chance to talk with some nifty people, and I thought it would be neat to bring in some folks who had influence on Disney history to talk about the things they were involved with, to talk about the people and the places that we all know from Disney history. And so our next episode is going to be an interview, which is a first for us. Very exciting. And we are going to be speaking to Frank Stanek, a Disney executive who began just as a frontline employee at Disneyland in 1961, rose to become a corporate director of planning and really accomplished so much in the industry, both for Disney and for Universal. He was the 2013 recipient of the Thea Buzz Price Award for a lifetime of distinguished achievement. So Frank's a really interesting guy and had a lot to share. What are your thoughts about this, Jeff, and our interview that we've got coming up? I'm very excited for this format. I mean, just the ability to talk to these people. Frank especially was just present to so many things I'm interested in at Disney history. 
he's kind of a everywhere during all these projects that I've had so many questions about. So he really outlines his entire career. We have so much audio. It's very exciting. And he was really generous with his time and generous with his stories. Really funny. Yeah, he was absolutely super generous with his time. Uh, we, as you said, we got a lot of audio and like you said, the amazing thing about his career is he was there for all these things. World's fair, mineral King, Walt Disney world, Epcot Center, Tokyo Disneyland, all the way through, and uh, even beyond to the Universal stuff, which we didn't really talk about. But it's a fascinating career, and uh, I'm really glad we got to talk to him. So we're not going to be abandoning our current format. What we're going to do is try and alternate, maybe get a couple of episodes a month uh, instead of just the one. Seems so outrageous. it's, It's very ambitious. And so uh, we thought to fit in with our snowy theme, we talked, Frank, a little about uh, Mineral King and see what he had to say about that. Initially, the project started with Walt. Walt learned to ski at Yosemite, took his family to Yosemite to ski. Loogie Fogler was running the school school up there. Walt was involved in the 1960 Squaw Winter Olympics and Mm -hmm. operated the Olympics management of the facility for the Olympic Committee with people from Disneyland. And he was very much thinking that a ski resort was a good family activity. Uh, He was mainly focused to do something on both, not just the winter side of it, but the summer side as well. And so... I believe he owned a small cabin up at Mineral King, which is outside of Fresno, Visalia, California, here in the Sierras. Sure. And it it was, I think, a 10,500-foot elevation at the top, good vertical drop, over 7,000 feet. And so he decided that that would be a good place to build a ski resort and so he began that process hired Willie Scheffler who was the Olympic champion ski coach at the University of Denver they got involved and we try to go through that process I learned to ski because of Mineral King (laughs) Uh, when I was in the management program that Disney had to prepare management for Walt Disney World and Mineral King and the future projects, I was one of the persons selected to go on a 13-week management training program. And we had a number of those programs. They, they got reduced in time, but effectively, we were the, I was in the first one, and there were seven of us. And, and we, had to do a, we had to do a project during that 13 weeks besides learn about the company and also. So we, the project that we did was on Mineral King. So after hiking up from the base camp of 7,000 feet to 10.5 on foot in the snow, I decided I should learn oh to ski. <laughs> so I, uh, but anyway, we, as part of our training program, we went to Vail, 
which was a developing resort at the time in Colorado. And we spent a couple of days there talking to some of the developers and about the ski business and also got to take a couple lessons. And I took one lesson there and the ski instructor, I always remember he taught us, he taught us about the fall line and the fall line is <laughs> basically the line straight down the mountain. But if you get perpendicular to the fall line, you can literally, uh, if you know how to traverse it, you, you, you can get down any mountain in the world. And after that one lesson, I always told people I could ski down the Empire State Building if I had to, because <laughs> I know about the fall line. <laughs> well, between uh, Mineral King and Independence Lake, did one of them seem closer to becoming reality? Did, uh, did one make it further along than the other? What happened was, on Mineral King, there was it was the beginning of the environmental stuff. So everybody was worried about developing resources. Mineral King was under the jurisdiction of the uh, forestry and agriculture, and they were a little more liberal about the use of national forest land because they were charged with getting the land used for, obviously, cutting lumber, timber, grazing, agriculture use, so they were dealing with that. Mining was all in their purview. So a ski resort was an easy fit for them to consider providing a lease for. The Park Service, of course, was existing to protect all of that stuff. And so the Park Service was dealing with protecting the natural resources, leaving them untouched effectively. So what happened was the environmentalists got all upset. And there was a particularly in California, there was a, a lot of unhappiness with ski resorts. So somebody pulled a few strings and lo and behold, the Park Service absorbed the area of Mineral King into the Sequoia National Park. <laughs> right. Took it and away from agriculture. That. Okay. So, so there you go. And so that basically kill that project but you know and there was considerable time on that and as i say card walker was the leader of that so we didn't give up and bob hicks was the point guy on on these projects so bob hicks was told to go find another piece of mountain you know so we came up with uh he came up with uh, lake independence Lake Independence was a little further north. It was outside of Truckee, uh, off of Highway 80 in California, in Northern California. And so this was a joint venture with the power company from Nevada that owned the lake and the land around it. It was one of those typical checkerboard things where the private owner had one square mile and the forestry service, again, the agriculture people had the other square mile and so we figured we could make a deal because we had both private and government again the right agency sure. and there were no national parks nearby to acquire the the land so we started off with that and I spent a lot of time on that I 
think I said I was the only one of the few people that have skied Lake Independence right. in the mountains. Absolutely. And it was meant to be a big summer vacation, probably more summer than Mineral King. It was a bigger area than Mineral King. Mineral King would have been more like uh, Aspen or Medvale, that kind of a mountain. Lake Independence was probably going to be more like a park city or or uh, thereabouts. It had a lot more land, a lot more summer activity kind of thing. Oh, interesting. And so we started off on that one, and unfortunately that one ran afoul of the state of California, who Governor Brown at the time, Jerry Brown, in his first term, didn't want the project because, again, on environmental issues. So we never got to build that. And I'm trying to think that probably ended sometime before Tokyo Disneyland. So I would say in the mid to late 70s, that was finally a dead project. Probably the right. latter part of the 70s. That was a dead project as well. So the interesting thing is that Cardwalker was the leader on both of those projects, of course, and it was a very small group of people working on those projects because none of them really got into a major design planning effort. So Card would always, he had this habit of taking his red pencil and on all the intercompany memos, he'd always look at the distribution list and then he'd add a few names of people he thought needed to see whatever the memo was about. Mm-hmm. And he'd always write that in red and then his secretary would make copies and send them out. So you always, if you were on the receiving end of that, you got a, a Xerox copy of a of an intercompany memo and you could see with the subject matter, but off to the side on the margin was everybody else who got a copy of it. And you could see that. So this is Card's way of doing things. So circulating information. And every so often, even the project was not moving very far, you'd get a memo from Card on Mineral King or like Independence or whatever, you know, and it'd have your name on it. And I remember sometime in the middle 80s, Card was still, he was chairman. A memo comes from Card Walker, same way. Now the names, the names of the people are not as many as they used to be because they're no longer around. They've left the company or whatever. But I was still on the original Mineral King team, on Carl Walker's <laughs> original team member of uh, of Mineral King and Lake Independence. And long after, this has got to be good seven, eight years after Mineral King or Lake Independence, Something comes across my desk. Cardwalker's got my name written down there with a few other people. And it's it's got to do with Mineral King or Lake Independence. I can't remember which project it was. I guess it was Mineral King, I think. And I just looked at that, and I said to myself, this is amazing. I said, as long as Cardwalker's running this company or still in charge... I'll never be fired because I've been on the original Mineral <laughs> King team. <laughs> you can't get that's fired until it, you finish Mineral King. That's yeah, that's why you're I say. safe. It, it never, it, it never ended. You know, as far as Card was concerned. So that was one of the great things about Card. He always 
He always knew, he always remembered the people that were involved, and he kept them informed in his way. Just making tracks in the snow, keeping warm and cozy, shivering and shaking to that good old country dream. Oh, sing it out, Henry! Yeah. We're making tracks in the snow, and everything is rosy. No more hibernating, boys, we're up on our feet. Just making tracks in the snow, keeping warm and cozy. Shivering and shaking to that good old country beat. Yes, Well, that wraps up this episode of the Progress City Radio Hour, our snow show. We hope you've enjoyed this trip through some frozen worlds, definitely some worlds I would like to go to in real life. Yes, and best thing is, there's still so much we have yet to talk about that we can revisit in future shows. There's much more to be said about Mineral King and Independence Lake, and of course, uh, the 1960 Winter Olympics. So there's lots of snowy fun ahead. And Snowball Express. I got to get that mentioned in there. That's the fun thing about picking these themes is you come up with a big cloud of ideas and, you're, and you just have to fiddle it down. So, yes, we will probably be back here someday. We'd like to thank everyone for listening to our 4th of July episode and sending feedback. Like Michael said, we always appreciate you interacting with us online. And that's very easy to do. There's always Michael's Twitter at Progress City USA. And we have an email, podcast at progresscityusa.com. And if you send enough mail there, we may just have to open the mailbag. So send questions, comments, suggestions. All are welcome. That's right. We have also been moonlighting on another podcast, the Medfield College Film Society, a podcast that delves into the Disney vault and reviews a movie once a month with some specials here and there. We've done a lot of odd little things this summer that have been very fun to do. Uh, We started this podcast last year with uh, our childhood friend, Robert McSwain, and his buddy, Andy Brown. And you can find that on all podcast platforms as well. And at Medfield Film on Twitter, Instagram, and other social places. So if you want to delve into the Disney film world, that's a place to start. So, Jeff, what's next for us? I think we're going to take a trip to the Progress City Town Hall for our interview with Frank Stanick, a legend in the field of theme parks. And we have a bunch to share with you. So we'll probably split that up. And then after that, we're going to take a trip out into the wilderness for our next themed episode in August. That's right. Pack up your kit bag and get ready to go because we're heading off into the wild frontier. We look forward to sharing some stories with you there. And please tune in for our interview with Frank Stanek. You will not believe the stories he has. Thank you all for listening and see you next time. now it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. 
So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.